welcome back to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna, slightly alarmed <laughs> by all the inflection, but I'm here. <laughs> you know what? I screwed up the intro and then I just carried <laughs> it through. I liked it. I liked it. And our show, of course, is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tkumloops-Tay territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmakulu. And today's text, The Case of Windy Lake, takes place on the fictional Windy Lake First Nation, which is based on the Mistapistic Cree Nation in Treaty 5 territory, now known as Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so folks, we are covering a firmly middle grade property with Definitely. this book. And of course, we've been referring to it as an indigenous hardy boys book. And I realized uh, maybe we shouldn't have referred to it that way. But then I did see a CBC article mm-hmm. that described it as such. So I actually felt a little better. Yeah, I think it's definitely been the marketing spin. But in some ways, it's kind of more interesting than a Hardy Boys in that, first of all, there's a girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's four cousins, three boy cousins and their girl cousin. And it's way more entrenched in community yes. and culture than I ever remember the Hardy Boys being. So, you know, Joe and I were kind of saying off the top, like, sometimes we struggle with middle grade fiction. The jump between middle grade and YA is pretty vast in terms yes. of just like... The kind of content you encounter and also the writing style, right? When we read middle grade fiction, it's a much more simplistic storytelling style for obvious (laughs) reasons. Yep. And so, you know, this book is like not designed for two, you know, approaching (laughs) middle aged (laughs) people. Um, But I really appreciate the idea of that sort of swashbuckling mystery genre, which is so popular with middle grade kids. But being told from a perspective, you know, other than just white boys, it's kind Mm -hmm. of fun. Yeah. And this is, of course, another Canadian Indigenous text. So there's something kind of special about it in that regard. It occurred to me that this is also one of the first texts that we've read that actually takes place in this part of what is now known as Canada, or what is referred to as Canada. And even just that change of location really distinguishes it from the other indigenous texts that we've read, which have taken place in like Northern Ontario or up North. It's just a different flavor. Yeah. I think this is the kind of book that's um, great in terms of seeing representation for indigenous kids for sure. But also, you know, when you grow up as a kid in a rural area, when you grow up like in the country, you don't read a lot of stories or see a lot of representation of your experiences. So I think for that reason, it's really good too. Like these kids are not going to be able to like go to the mall. (laughs) There's no no mall, (laughs) right? And so the ways in which they kind of problem solve and get what they need, like it's all very much tied deeply to its geography. And I agree Mm -hmm. with you. It's pretty refreshing. So should I talk a little bit about the plot? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the series is called the Mighty Muskrat Mystery Series, and the cousins, <laughs> I don't think that they refer to themselves this way. The community refers to them as the Mighty Muskrats. Right. And there's this group of four kids who are tightly knit. We have Sam, Otter, Atim, and Chickadee, and they spend a ton of time together. They've created this kind of like hangout slash sort of home base at the dump, I guess not really the dump, like a junkyard. 
Yes. So their hangout is completely masked by like old car parts. You kind of don't think there's anything there, but really they've turned the inside of a bus into like this very cool hangout that I Mm want to see. Actually, this is something that I would love to see adapted into like a TV series on like APTN or CBC or something, just because I want to see these hijinks on the screen and I really want to see the hangout. Yeah, it's fascinating because as a kid, I used to read this series. It was presented by Alfred Hitchcock. I think that was the hook to get people invested in it. But it was called The Three Investigators, very similar to this in that it's like three best friends. They solve mysteries that adults have no capacity to wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. But they had a similar kind of hideout where it was disguised behind other things that regular folks would never think to look at. So Mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of like childhood flashbacks with those. Oh, sidebar, if anybody read The Three Investigators and wants to commiserate with me, please do, (laughs) because I feel like no one ever talked about it. But that series ran 100 books strong. Whoa, seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Never heard of it. Huh. Um, anyway, so... Sorry, detour. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, good detour. This is the first book in the series. It's called The Case of Windy Lake. And there's sort of two plots going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's a major construction project happening that threatens the local waterway. And the the kid's older cousin, Denise, is protesting it. So that's like mm-hmm. one storyline that's happening. Yep. And also there's this archaeologist anthropologist with a long history of exploiting the local native people to make mm-hmm. his career as a native studies prof at the university. Uh-huh. And he's gone missing. And yeah. so... On the one hand, it's it's a swashbuckly kid mystery. And on the other hand, it's like, whoo, okay, that's actually mm-hmm. a pretty like a major cultural story that's happening like right now that this book is tapping into. So I really liked that. And the kids and the community kind of have mixed feelings about finding this dude. They're like, mm-hmm. we know we got to find him because it's the right thing to do. But also... The kids specifically Google him and find out his body of work and find out some of the disparaging things that he's published about Indigenous people. And they're like, yeah, huh, can't imagine why the elders don't really want to help super much. Yeah, well, there is also this other element at play, which is that the area that they're doing the search for this missing academic, it's located near a historical cave. A sacred cave, right? Right, that the elders are looking to protect. They don't want it to be exploited by someone like this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they want this this man found, but they also don't want the contents of this sacred cave to be revealed for fear of what non-Indigenous people will try to take. Like, And that's really what the Denise piece is about. It's her figuring out her place in the community, but also saying, um, you can't just come in here and take our water and destroy our livelihood. And... There are some fascinating complexities considering that, yeah, you're right, this is very much like a low-stakes, middle-grade, swashbuckling action book. Yeah, for one thing, Denise ends up being kind of confronted slash consoled by a young man from another community who has come to this territory to work. And he tries to explain to Denise, like, he actually needs this job for his family. He can't Mm -hmm. feed his family without this work. And he understands that some of the supervisors, like, take liberties and don't follow the environmental protocols. But he tries to argue with her that most of them do. Um, Mm -hmm. And she feels really torn by that because, you know, she cares about her people. She's doing this work because she cares about her people in a really visceral and important way. Right. And that need for 
economic security for the community is something that a lot of the characters keep coming back to. Like there's this constant tension and this constant push and pull around these issues, which I found, yeah, like very nuanced for a middle grade novel and really willing to examine and imagine other sides. In fact, the resolution from Denise is that she she ends her protest not because she's going to end protesting, mm-hmm. but because she's going to pursue legislative change. She's going to pursue more formal channels. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. There's a lot going on here. And these kids are really deeply steeped in a whole bunch of modern and important questions facing like issues of indigenous sovereignty. I thought it was neat. I don't think we even said the author. Michael Hutchison is the author. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that Hutchison is willing to set this story in and amongst these conversations because he doesn't have to, right? Like this would be compelling without all of that for the audience that he's targeting. And it would still have the kind of sales pitch of like indigenous hardy boys. Mm -hmm. But he's actually asking his middle grade audience to work a little harder and think a little more. Even while the book wasn't like, the most engaging thing for me as an adult reader, I really admired the big aims of the book. And I think the series as a whole, the second book is called The Case of the Missing Auntie. And there's also a third book called The Case of the Burgled Bundle. Yes. And so in each of those books, we're dealing with like murdered and missing indigenous women, and we're dealing with like cultural appropriation. So Mm -hmm. You know, Hutchison is is asking a lot of his readers, and I, I always like it when writers ask a lot of their young readers. Well, part of it, too, is that if you look into his history, he's not, uh, I was going to say, he's not just a writer. <laughs> not that anyone is ever just a writer. But uh, in his case specifically, he has done so much uh, journalism, but also advocacy work. So mm-hmm. he has a background as a writer for the Calgary Strait and Aboriginal Times. He's also worked the communication side of the desk for the ICC in Ottawa. He's been involved in APTN Investigates. He's done advocacy work for the Assembly of First Nations. So he is like very steeped in community indigenous issues. So I think a lot of that is informing this work. So he's found a really clever outlet to kind of funnel his advocacy work in a way that goes down very easy because you read it and you're disarmed thinking, oh, I'm just reading a a little middle grade investigation book. And really what he's doing is he's not only introducing readers to indigenous issues, but also really giving them a foundational education in a variety of different pressing historical issues that has Mm -hmm. faced indigenous people, particularly in Canada. This is an interesting book series in that I think young Indigenous readers will see themselves in the story. And there's lots of things that go sort of basically unexplained. Like, Mm -hmm. everybody in the community calls them muskrats and laughs about it when they call them muskrats. And that's never really explained. Mm -hmm. It's just like, maybe if if we spoke the language, if we got the cultural references, maybe we get it. But otherwise, we don't. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, I think that the big picture issues, you know, like why this academic is someone of questionable and dubious character, that does get explained, right? Like the big picture sort of settler issues that need to be confronted by settler readers are explained. Mm -hmm. And also there's this whole kind of in-group layer that would be great, particularly for, you know, for 
kids who have grown up in First Nations in and around Manitoba, I would imagine they will see themselves in a lot of that in-group humor. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of his other credits is he developed APTN's version of Politically Incorrect called The Laughing Drum. That's awesome. Yeah. And in the CBC article, Hutchinson talks very clearly about how he wanted this book to be funny, but it's also inside jokes. So, you know, I'm thinking back, oh, I didn't, you know, some of it is kind of mildly amusing, but I gather that because we're not in the know, there's a whole bunch of jokes that we're actually missing that will completely resonate with Indigenous readers. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is interesting is Hutchison's desire to show multiple perspectives on various Indigenous issues. Like, I think he's he's pretty careful to resist any kind of like pan indigeneity in the books so yeah so many references to Cree and then first nations or like other indigenous peoples and very deliberately so i took it yeah i agree and also just the fact that like you know we've got indigenous characters in the book who are sort of uh in favor of economic development at any cost versus those who want to protect the environment right and those perspectives are shared like i think hutchison himself comes out on the side of the environment in that debate mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. both sides are represented quite fairly and in what i read about the second book there's a similar sort of debate that goes on between you know whether indigenous people should seek to uh, assimilate in the city or if they should stick mm. to their traditional territories okay. and he represents both sides of that discussion as well so you know i think hutchison is taking really seriously this issue that we talk about a lot, which is the kind of Highlander effect of publishing, right? Like, I think he knows that for the time being, he's going to be the only person writing middle grade mysteries, who's getting the kind of press that he is. And so he, he seems to feel a responsibility to tell these stories from as many perspectives as he can, Mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. I think that, as always, we would rather have more, Um, but until we can have more, this desire to really resist any kind of singular, like, quote unquote, First Nations way of thinking, I think is really admirable. Right. Actually, that's an interesting segue, because when I was reading this, one of the things that I found mildly confronting as a a reader of more traditional mystery novels was how not low stakes this all is, but how the story at times is less interested in the mystery than Mm. cueing us to who these characters are, the land that they live on, the kind of interactions, the social fabric that makes up the community. Like, Mm -hmm. so often it's like, oh, right. And also we're trying to find this missing man. But we're taking significant detours to spend some time with elders who live in a different location, or even the interaction that the cousins have with kind of an outsider on the land, uh, Mm -hmm. Fish, who they're, you know, they try to seek out for information because he was the man who guided the archaeologists. So they end up going and speaking to his wife. They have some classist ideas about fish's house and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know how run down it looks and then they end up seeing oh actually it's run down because he's got all of these kids and the kids are really joyful and they make this they make a connection with the kids that's brief and fleeting but it's also really memorable mm-hmm. and it ultimately comes to nothing in terms of helping them to solve the mystery but it's also because i feel like the book is 
kind of uninterested in the mystery. It's just a way to tell these more interesting community-driven stories. Yes, I 100% agree with that. And I think that that can be really frustrating for a reader who's used to a much more Mm -hmm. traditional, you know, when we talk about like how mysteries are structured, usually like a white Western mystery story, we would think of a lot of what's happening in this book as red herrings. And we'd be like, well, this book has so many red herrings. It doesn't pay off this part and this part. And you're like, yeah, but it never intended to. Like that's our preconceived notions. Well, and the fact that like this missing person is not a more important or compelling story than Denise's Mm -hmm. quest to figure out her role in the community, right? Like those are given equal weight um, in a way that particularly as like, oh, a white academic, like, please go (laughs) rescue the white academic. (laughs) No, he got himself into it. So Uncle Levi is like the guy who kind of straddles both worlds because he's the chief of the tribal police. So he's like, he has to maintain like a quote unquote law and order for this corporation that's coming in. But he Mm -hmm. also cares very much about his community. Right. And he's often the voice of reason. At one point he says like, yeah, you know what? It hasn't rained. It's unseasonably warm. The old guy will be fine for one more night. Like, (laughs) we'll get there. (laughs) And it's just like... You know what? He probably will be fine for one more night. And it's probably that one more night that makes him actually learn something as he as he emerges from the bush. What I love about that scene where he emerges from the bush, by the way, is he's still like super paternalistic and dismissive. Like he's learned a lesson about like the need to not exploit people. But like the way he pats the journalist on the arm and the way he's still he's He's still still a douche. Yeah, he still has this relationship to these people that is, like, ultimately exploitative. I thought Mm -hmm. Hutchison did a really good job with that because, I mean, this guy has made his entire career by taking from these people. It's Mm -hmm. unlikely that he's, like, miraculously suddenly seen the light, right? Yeah, it's a little painting in broad strokes. Like, the two white characters in this story are very, they're not even coded, like, they just fully are antagonist slash villains like the mine owner who uh, denise is protesting is just horrible all he does is yell and demand that people get off his land and talking about money and you're just like okay this is not a flattering depiction of white people (laughs) but also it's very much like uh well guess what we're not very kind to indigenous folks in this country and i think that's important to acknowledge we don't get to be well-rounded characters in this narrative because we are kind of garbage. Well, and, you know, think about, if you really think about the few times you interacted with Indigenous characters in your middle grade reading when you mm-hmm. were like 10 or 12, Stereotypical. they probably weren't very well-rounded characters, right? Yep. And so there's a little bit of a way in which this text offers a corrective. It's it's challenging a white reader a settler reader to not just see the indigenous characters as having a singular perspective. And Mm -hmm. also it's sort of pushing back at the idea that the only people who get to be rounded or complex are the white characters, which is, you know, that was true Mm -hmm. of like every book I read when I was 10, I'm sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Brenna, I'm interested because I think one of the struggles that I did have, like all of the other issues I think are, 
they're confronting, they're challenging because I'm being taken out of my comfort zone in terms of the way the book is written and who the book is actually for. Mm -hmm. But I will say one thing that I didn't 100% love about this book, and I'd be interested to know if it improves in the second and third book, is that I didn't actually find our young protagonists all that interesting Mm -hmm. or well-rounded. It's like one character split into four. Like they do each have their own distinctions, but it's like, this one is taller, this one is stronger, this one is a girl. And I did feel like Hutchinson is actually better at drawing well-rounded interesting characters from his adult cast like Mm -hmm. i was very interested in the grandfather and denise yes i agree with you completely i think that the kids are sort of like an archetypal archetypical archetypal Archetypal. they're like a gang yeah (laughs) Um, and it's like we just know them as a crew like i can i can pick out how chickadee is distinct from the other characters but the three boys are completely amorphous to me and maybe that will change as the series develops it's interesting i almost wanted like remember when i made you read the babysitter's club Mm-hmm. And I was like, you can basically skip chapters two and three once you've read them once because they're the exact same every time. And in yes. chapters two and three, you get the rundown of who all the characters are. Mm-hmm. And then you get the rundown of how the Babysitter's Club works. Yep. I kind of wanted that here. A little bit. Yeah. Just so I had that context. Yeah, I kind of wanted that here. Yeah. Chickadee stands out because she's the girl, but she also doesn't have anything besides the fact that she's a girl to me. Mm-hmm. She does the more maternalistic housekeeping when they work for the grandfather, which I didn't 100% love, but I wasn't sure if that was something I was misunderstanding. Mm. Otter ended up becoming the one who was a bit more well-rounded because he's the one who ultimately solves the mystery. Yes. And I like the fact that the mystery itself is actually solved in a very direct way that speaks to the indigenous relationship to the land. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it all comes down to the rope that is tied to the boat of this missing archaeologist and the concern that the boat was dragged up to shore because the rope has been stretched tight. And then the revelation that, oh, it was actually birds who mistook the rope for snakes in Mm -hmm. the area. And I thought that that was just a really clever And it speaks to something larger, like the mystery is solved by Indigenous people's understanding of how the land works, which is such a fundamental principle when we think about these people. So I did really like that. And I also really liked that the kids take a traditional teaching seriously that allows Otter to solve this case. Yes, Like, it takes everything Uncle Lewis has to convince the RCMP to follow this lead. And he basically has to lie to them about why he thinks it's important. Because Mm -hmm. he knows that if they think it's, like, just some, like, airy-fairy on-the-land stuff, they're not going to listen. Of course. I actually ended up with a lot of compassion for Uncle Levi. Me too. Because I didn't like him at first. No, he's despicable. (laughs) And then at the end, I was like, this dude is really trying to do his best within Mm -hmm. some pretty crap systems. Yeah, he's really trying to navigate two completely different worlds and act as the mediator. Yeah, yeah. It's not an enviable position. Not at all. I really think that Hutchison's strength is clear when you see how a character like Uncle Levi gets developed. So it's my hope that just like Otter gets his moment in the sun in this book, maybe as that happens in each book, the characters Mm -hmm. will become more clear and distinct from each other. Yeah, I don't know if I would say, like, every adult reader go out and read this, but I do think that if you have 
if you have middle graders in your life, particularly, yeah. I think, middle grade boys, because we've seen that a lot of literature that is targeted for middle grade boys is sort of replete with stereotypes and stuff. Yeah. And so this is a really, I think this is a this is a book series that will appeal to middle grade boys and also introduce them to a level of nuance to their thinking that might be really valuable. So mm -hmm. I said to Joe before we started recording, like, I don't know if I'm going to read the rest of the series, but I do know that when my son is old enough, I'm going to buy him the whole series because I yeah. want him to read them. So Absolutely. I'm glad they exist. And I think that they would make great gifts for the young people in your life. Set aside a little bit in your budget because mm -hmm. you could buy the three pack for Christmas and this would make a great gift. Totally. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to say I don't want to play YA bingo with this text. It's not really a YA text, and there's no. not really any tropes. No, and no. The academic doesn't even die, so you don't even have a dead body, Joe. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, Joe, mm -hmm. before I give all the email and contact information, we mm -hmm. should remind people that we're coming up on an important episode milestone over here <laughs> at HKHS Pod. Yes, we are, Brenna. Shockingly enough, we're about to come up on our 150th episode. It's absolutely wild to me. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but we need a little bit of help celebrating it. So mm -hmm. we would love to hear from folks. Yes, please. So you can always tweet us HKHSPod or hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters and tweet length thoughts or tweet threads are more than welcome. But if you do have something longer, you can always email us HKHSPod at gmail.com. We'd mm -hmm. love to know why you started listening, what's kept you listening, and you know how we fit into your lives. Yeah. It's really nice to know and it'll be a fun piece to include in the 150th episode celebration. Yeah. Now, Joe, if someone mm -hmm. wants to just talk to you because they <laughs> don't have any thoughts about me, right. uh, how would they find you? <laughs> I could be reached at a beast on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And next week... Mm -hmm. We're going to get a little riot girl up in oh, here, yeah. Brenna. <laughs> yes. You know what? It's never the 90s enough. So Indeed. <laughs> we're going to check out Moxie. The book is by Jennifer Mathieu and the movie just came out this year. It's available on Netflix. So mm -hmm. go and check out Moxie. Enjoy a little bit of Riot Girl nostalgia if you're old like me or find out about Riot <laughs> Girls for the first time if you're young and hip. And uh, yeah, that's where we're heading next. Mm -hmm, for sure. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. 